Good afternoon. The time is 2 o'clock. Welcome to Vox Pop for this Thursday, February 8th. I'm Ray Graff. Time again for another edition of the Science Forum. The scientists are here. They're ready to go. The number is 800-348-2551 if you have a science question. 800-348-2551 or email voxpop at wamc.org. Voxpop at wamc.org. The number again is 800-348-2551. Today on the program, the scientists are going to we're going to find out if they are super tasters. This is exciting radio, and uh, I've already found out that I I have no taste. But I think you knew that already if you've been listening all these years. The number here is 800-348-2551. Science coming up after the news. Hello again. Welcome back to Vox Pop, WAMC's live afternoon call-in talk show. I'm Ray Graff. Today we reconvene the Science Forum. Our experts are ready to respond to your questions. The number to call is 800-348-2551. If you have a question, 800-348-2551. Feel free to email as well if that is your choice. Voxpop at WAMC.org is the email address. Voxpop at WAMC.org or call us 800-348-2551. Should be a fun show today. We'll find out if there are any super tasters among us. Let's have our team of scientists sign in, please. I'd like to think I'm tasteful. Oh, maybe oh, this one's is the on. mic not on? Wait, hold on. Maybe there that. We, there it is. Wow, now you're like George and, and Paul me. there. Yeah, Ringo. Two, two mics. Uh, I'd like to think I'm tasteful, but we'll <clears> see. Um, I'm SUNY Cobal Skills Barbara Bravets, and I'm a biochemist. How's the school going over there at the uh, Cobal Skill? We're peachy. Yeah. It's February. The students are back. We are in the throes of the spring semester. That is exciting. Hello, and I'm Kevin Knuth from the University of Albany in the physics department. How's the physics department faring so far? We're doing great. Yeah? Yep. Smart kids? Yeah, good kids. I'm teaching in an advanced physics lab. This class, this semester, and it's going well. By the time they they get to advanced physics, there are no more troublemakers in the oh, crew, right? Wait a minute. No, that's never. <laughs> physics are physicists are always troublemakers. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, you, you. Uh, what about you? I'm Jim Pickett. I'm an organic chemist, mostly retired now. Well, welcome back. And I'm Ed Stender from SUNY Cobal Skill, geology, astronomy, and anything nobody else can answer. And things going well for you over at the Cobal Skill? As far as I know, yes, but I try not to look very often. <laughs> That's very nice. Uh, okay, well, I mentioned this at the beginning of the show. Susie Chekai, our screener today. The, the uh, last show, or maybe a couple, couple shows, shows ago, ago. Yeah, I think it took Susie a while to get these strips. We talked about the, the sense of taste, and you had mentioned that in, in some of the classes you yeah. teach, you have these test strips yeah. that, that tell you whether you are a super taster. And this is phenyl thiocarbonide, is that right? Close enough. What for is it? Oh, you see, you know, PT, I'll just call it PTC. Oh, it's carbamide. Yeah, ah. so phenylthiocarbamide. Right you are. I'm glad you said yeah, that. Yeah, PTC. So um, th- what, yeah. what is this, and, and how does it work? It is a chemical that's coated on top of these little tiny strips of paper. They're like Dixie cup size, tiny little pieces of paper. And most people cannot taste PTC. Yep, I couldn't. But if, you're, if you have a certain gene or c- constellation of genes then you do taste this, and it's not a pleasant walk down the road. So you understand there may be some pain and suffering in this room well, if I we love, do taste I it. I love that. Uh, yeah. Actually, uh, pain and suffering on the radio. I mean, I, I, I dole out plenty of pain and suffering every <laughs> afternoon. Um, I failed this. I couldn't just taste it like paper. Sarah LaDuke tried it and also had it taste like paper. Ian Pickus, our news director, had a scowl and said that's a terrible taste. Right. And so let's so, pass it out and see if sure. anybody else will scowl. I've done this before. I know where I'm going to land. Okay. Unless I've genetically altered myself somehow. Well. But, uh, you know, people who are super tasters, there, there is, there are some definite tendencies that they have. They tend to not like broccoli, cabbage, Brussels sprouts. Well, I don't like anything any of those in the br- yeah, Neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> Can I take two? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they tend to be picky eaters. So I don't know if Ian Pickus is a picky eater, but his name says Pickus. Ah, well maybe, maybe he right? is. He's uh, picky about many things, so I assume it's also it also applies to food. And right. um, the the second thing is that 
uh, people like sommeliers, uh, people who work in the food science industry where they need tasters. Yeah. Computers have not gotten good enough, and instrumentation for taste has not gotten refined enough to be able to simulate the human brain and the uh-huh. human tongue. So super tasters are often hired for their ability to discern flavor. Interesting. All right, so you can't taste it. Nope. What about you, Kevin Knuth? All right, I'm going to try it. Here we go. No scowl. Physicist. He can't taste a thing. It's a little bitter. But oh, really? Be, or is it bitter paper? No, paper's pretty banal. No, it's a little bitter, but, but not, not bad. Much. Jim? But you don't want to wipe nope. your tongue off. No taste. Yeah, I've got a bitter taste as well. But that just may be because of my life. And general. also that you're here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know there's, there's right. three different papers you can buy, and then you can kind of get gradations of how tasteless or tasteful you are. Ah, okay. Well. So I think that means that Ed and Kevin are have more taste than the rest of us. Okay. All right. Aye, so aye, they're aye. slightly... <laughs> and then we're tasteless. And Zach, speaking of tasteless, Zach, the engineer, I've got a few extra of oh, these. Yes. So during the break, I'd like you to take the test, too, to see... Should Have you been listening bets? at all? I think we're surprising, Zach. So these are test strips that t- tell you whether you're a super taster. And uh, the, the Susie Chekai brought them in. They're, they're not, it's nothing bad. Yes. It won't hurt you. It's, it's PTC, not LSD. Right you are. That's three letters, no matter what. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> the number here is 800-348-2551. Before we get to the calls and the emails, any of you scientists have anything scientific to say? E equals MC squared. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That anything just... any in the news? Oh, anything front. in anything the news. Any... Plus PC. Gosh, there's, there's a lot in the news lately. Um, the little helicopter on Mars that could, Died. can't go uh, anymore. Yeah. It's a couldn't. No, what happened? It, I think it broke a rotor. Uh, so it's lopsided and it lost a caster off of one of its landing gear, which are these spindly little legs. That was okay. They figured out how to weight it one way so it could limp on the ground but the rotor i think was the fatal yeah. error wasn't that a an invention or an idea from a kid a yeah i think it was a contest here? yeah though i had a little bit of taste in my mouth now do you do mm-hmm. here just have another one it's <laughs> yeah. delicious mm. it could just be the show be after all now uh, on mars the atmosphere is very thin right? very thin yes how do you i always thought you needed air to do this to do to make a helicopter well, go it, it's thin and thick because it's carbon dioxide, which is much more dense than air. Ah. So it's enough to allow the thing with two rotors, two sets of rotors going fast to be able to, to lift up. Right, it so was, it was the thing wash. they were trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. The, the gravity is only one-third on Mars as it is on Earth, so it's way less So that helps. Mars. So the gravity helps it get lift, and then the atmosphere prevents it from getting lift. So it, it, It's an amazing success story. It went... For how many years? Three years. Yeah. 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 Incredible. Way past its expected lifetime. And uh, there are many, many pictures. I assume that they're going to be going through them for some time now. Well, Uh, the thing is, it's still there and can take pictures. It's still within contact. The problem is it's just busted. Yeah. So, like a remote control that the t- you've sold the TV, it's still a remote control, well, you right? Know, but but, once, but once the Perseverance ro- rover trundles off, it'll yes. be out of contact right. because it has to talk. Yeah. You guys follow, follow Mars at all? I mean, uh, well, wh- wh- in why, this guy. Wh- wh- why I, I say that is I saw a news item the other day, maybe a week or two ago, about this sort of lattice work of octagonal lines, if you will, underground. So mm-hmm. they, they they anybody hear about this? Mm-hmm. No. So they mm-hmm. use ground penetrating radar and they, mm-hmm. they found these and they suspect it has something to do with thawing and freezing and freezing and thawing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you guys haven't seen that, then we'll make that homework for next time. Yeah, that's that's polygonization. It happens all the time. In fact they actually prove why it happens. Effectively, if you're on a very, very slight slope, even a even a minor slope uh, what happens is the water freezes as it comes to the surface, and it forms capillary action, so it forms fibers. And the fibers lift up the rocks, and if there's even a very slight slope, those those fibers are curved. So when it falls, it falls down a little uh-huh. bit down slope, and so you wind up with these structures. And once you start forming it, it becomes self-perpetuating. And so they're all over the world. You find these polygonals, polygonalization occurring because of small rocks that wind up around the edges of the polygons. I, I assume then this tells scientists something about the amount of water that at one time was on Mars. Well, it does tell you freeze-thaw, and it also tells you that in that area there was enough water in the ground for it to come out as, uh, as, as columnar ice. 
Number to call here is 800-348-2551. It's the Science Forum. We have a few emails already. We'll blast through those. Voxpop at WAMC.org. Our regular correspondent, Nick, writes in, in order to regulate body temperature when it is either 100 degrees or 30 degrees outside, which uses more energy of the body, assuming the proper clothing for both? In other words, to get warmer or to get cooler? Well, he threw that curveball at the end, which is assuming the proper clothing for both. Yeah. Um, That's what he does. Yeah. It's, it's, hard, <laughs> it's hard to cool yourself off with proper clothing. Okay. Really, it, your sweat really needs to do the job to wick that mo- wick the heat away. Um, certain clothing that allows for evaporation will will help that, but you know that happens. You know, even if you're stark naked, but not really helpful if you're going to Hannaford, right? You don't want to show up just like, hey, I'm hot. You know, you're gonna wear clothing. Oh, that's, that's the way I always go goes. to Hannaford. Well, and believe me, the lines really get shorter when I walk through. <laughs> oh, they're all express lines now. That's great. You, you couldn't taste the PTC. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you know, cold cold weather proper clothing. Um, you make your own little buffer layer, right? You've got this kind of insulated air layer that's stuck in your clothing uh, so that you can you don't have to really shiver to stay warm, for example, if you're wearing proper clothing. Improper clothing, it's, um, it's tougher to stay warm than it is to cool off. Okay. Uh, one more email, then we'll take a break. 800-348-2551 if you have a science question for our gang today. Kevin Knuth. Jim Pickett, Ed Standard, and uh, nope, Stander. Stander. Ed Stan, Standard is the guy I know from high school. And also Barbara Brabitz. Uh, Michael writes from Latham, I observed a phenomenon last month. There was a fluffy wet snow coating on the cable wire behind our house. There were no animals in on the line, nor any wind. The line bounced up and down for several hours. Why? Let's ask the physicist. <coughs> Uh, you want me to recap? No, I'm thinking. Okay. I'm not sure why that would happen. Do you um, want another test strip while you think? <laughs> I probably could use that. Okay. Huh. So, yeah, there's snow on it, no animals, nothing, the line bouncing up and down for several hours. And he says up and down, not side to side. Up and down up and for down. several hours, and there was uh, no wind. So, I know in cable lines, there are... The connectors to the poles have the ability to give way, uh, right? They have a flex to them. They're not rubber bands, but they're they're pieces of plastic that have the ability to stretch and then kind of retract. So in a way, they're kind of like lame rubber bands. And the purpose of that is so that if the wind is blowing, you're not going to rip the cable right off the, the telephone pole, and then somebody's got to come out and fix it. So you've got that give in the pole. And you wonder if that weight differential was just overwhelming <coughs> those little rubber band ish things so yeah. that we were bouncing up and down. Yeah, but even I wouldn't it, think it would go up and down, that, It wouldn't go up for hours, that's for sure. <laughs> Not hours. It should damp out, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have another theory, right? A lot of these, and I don't know this to be a fact, but a, a lot of uh, phone lines are on the same pole that, that have transformers on them. Right. Transformers, they'll occasionally blow up, for gosh sakes, but I assume that when they're doing their thing, there could be vibrations. And so maybe those vibrations are going into the wood of the pole, and into the line, which is not a power line, I, I don't think. But you know what I mean? Well, so. yeah, except that in order for it to go up and down, effectively the poles have to move further away from each other and come closer. Oh. And that certainly wouldn't happen because of a transformer on the top. All right. And that's why I was asking if it was side to side. Because yeah. that would be more feasible than up and down. I want to know whether there's side to side motion along with the up and down motion. That's you could have point. that happening. Yeah. Uh, it's also a matter, I mean, usually snow will drop off from that line. If you look underneath, mm-hmm. you'll see where it's fallen. If it continues to fall, then that mass change would cause the, the line kind to of cause the bounce back. Bounce, bounce Ed is shaking down. his not, head. Not for three or four hours, that's for sure. Yeah, nope. that's, that's the problem. And the snow itself, this last bit of snow, stayed on the line for oh, a very days. long time because it was yeah. so wet. Uh, Even on the sides of trees, it's it was smack dab onto the, there right. yeah. through the weekend, like this weekend. All right, well, let's take a break. We'll mull this over a bit. 800-348-2551. i got to run in the, stu- in the control room and uh, bring... Zach, a test strip. Uh, Okay, we'll be back. (laughs) 
Well, the results are in. Zach tasted paper, just like most of the rest of us. Uh, 800-348-2551. He's not a super taster, but he's a super engineer, and we, we really appreciate his work. The number here is 800-348-2551. By golly, it's the Science Forum. We've already stumped the band, and let's go to the phones and see what Merle and Argyle has to say. Hello, Merle. Hey, I'm first. Yeah, you're uh, first, man. This is, and uh, this is uh, one of those things. All you kids out there listening, don't do this at home. Okay. All right. What I've been doing the last several days, uh, the sun is coming up in the east at a ridge point where there are very few trees. The first time I saw it, I thought there was a forest fire in the woods because the light of the sun was on the base of the tree. And I thought it was a forest fire because it spread way out. All right. Uh, then I just watched and with the sun coming through the tree. But what happened after watching the sun spectacular coming through the tree is a pulsating of the sun itself and a ring cone type of phenomenon. It might be just me staring at the sun too much, but uh, it's a cone that's circular with, and it's blue and white yeah. ring. And sometimes it looks like it comes in, and sometimes it looks like it's going okay. into the cone. Merle, before the scientists answer, have you been hitting the test strips at all? <laughs> Uh, I'm, I got one right at my feet, and I want to test <laughs> right, one. All right, what do you think, scientists? Okay, three things. Two things. One thing. The red sun is caused by pollution in the atmosphere. And in particular, along with the pollution, probably some uh, cirrus clouds well up in the sky. And when the sun comes up, then the light from the sun hitting the cirrus clouds, which are filled with ice crystals, forms a ring sometimes called a glory, sometimes called a ring. And chances are that's what he was seeing wow. as a result of it going. It usually happens near the, when the sun's first coming up, because that's where you're going to have the greatest amount of high-level clouds mm. in the sky. And uh, it happens quite often, either both with the sun, because it's very bright, and sometimes as well with the moon. The Humans are always a sucker for a good sunrise or a sunset. I mean, that's just been the case all the time. You look at some of our astronomical monuments from past civilizations. Yeah, There's Stonehenge. Some, right, oh, Stonehenge. Well, Manhattan has its own Stonehenge, and it has to do with the sun coming up at a specific latitude um, twice a year. And uh, Manhattan Eng, as they call it, um, the sunrise and sunset aligns with uh, the grids of the streets in New York City. And that was just on January 11th. Mm. So we're not far off from that kind of uh, ability. You know, even in Manhattan, with all the distracting things that are there, people will go to 41st Street and 5th Avenue to watch Manhattan Eng. That's, so, uh, and that's, that's free. You don't even yeah. have to pay for that one. Let's just hope it doesn't rain on those days, right? Good point. So. Uh, well, thank you, Merle. That was actually very good. Appreciate the call. 800-348-2551. Kevin. Yeah, so I was. I got a text from a good friend, Allie, and she was remarking on the bouncing cable. Ah, okay, go. And she sent me the keyword resonance, and so, um, and so you don't need you don't need much wind to provide a little bit of energy, and if the mass of that cable is just right, so that you're you've got a resonance frequency, kind of like a little kid kicking on a swing. You don't have to kick a lot on the swing to get the swing going. Yeah, and so it could be just a small amount of wind that you know wasn't noticeable by person, and. Um, could it be something as simple as car traffic and vibrations in the ground, too? Could that create a resonance? Probably not. It would, it would, not. It would have would be to be small. sustained, right? Yeah. Whatever this is would have to sustain it if you're going to have this thing continue to recess up and down. The only, thing I, only reason I would think that resonance is possible is because it had snow on it. And maybe the fact that the cert, there was a particular mass that allowed it to go through a resonance frequency, because normally 
the wires are designed not to do that because if they do, it's really, really nasty for both the pole and also for the connections. Yeah, mm-hmm. you don't want to. Yeah, the, you know. the snow on it's going to affect the mass, and it's also going to affect the cross-sectional area of right. the of the cable, which will pick up, which will be more sensitive to wind. But the, wouldn't uh, it then s- slow down and stop a- as the minutes pass on, rather than going for two or three hours? Well, if there's if the wind if you still, still get a little bit of wind coming every now and again, you can keep pumping it up. And then Michael wrote in, uh, and I think you guys talked about this before the break. Maybe the snow was melting at the wire snow <laughs> or ice interface, and as the water drips off, the change in weight makes the wire bounce. So you guys brought that up as well. Yeah. I think we answered the question adequately now. Oh, the, should we move on? If you, I think if we should you move want on. kind of like really bad resonance, just go watch the video of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge oh, yeah. in Washington, oh, yeah, right? That's when that that is resonance at its worst, yeah. right? They when they designed that bridge, they didn't take that into account when the wind just got so over over the bay um, that it tore the bridge apart. The whole thing was just, that was a resonance gone awry. And that's a point as well, is that in order for get, to get the wire to go through a resonance frequency, the speed of the wind has to be constant for a long period of time, and that is a very unlikely. Interesting. You know, I, I'm sure this is not the same phenomenon, but if you go into a, a very tall skyscraper, they will sway, and mm-hmm. it's 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 really kind of uh, unnerving. Mm-hmm. I, I saw something in the news where they want to build the tallest skyscraper in the U.S., and I think they want to do it in Kansas or something, like out in the middle of just – there aren't a lot of things to block the wind. Right. And, I, and I got to thinking, is that a wise move? They, uh, they put basically pendulums mm-hmm. near, the, near the top of structures like that. That dampen out the, the oh, resonance. Interesting. And yeah. they have kind of spring-loaded bases as well to kind of take that resonance effect away from that. Yeah. But there's there's a big fault line that runs through the center of the United States near Kansas. So I don't know. I mean, yeah. if we could have a big earthquake in the Actually, center of the, the United States. Actually, the fault line is at the Mississippi, okay. so it's a little ways away. Mm-hmm. But as far as the buildings are concerned, you want them to do that because that's effectively how they're protected from uh, earthquakes. Uh huh. All right. The number to call here is 800-348-2551. I think we still might have somebody on the air there, but I'm not sure. I had a little phone glitch, if you will. We'll go to Nate in Sand Lake. And, Nate, you may be joined by somebody. I'm not sure. Hello, <laughs> Nate. Go ahead. <laughs> um, here's my question. Um, so I have cro- you know roof rack with crossbars. Now, when it's dry and sunny out, like now, I don't hear them at all. But when it's raining... Um, I hear them. They whistle. Why is that? It's pretty much what we're talking about, right? That sustained movement. If you resonance, you're, you're, you're yeah. getting a sound, right? You're getting the sound that you can hear, as opposed. You're, they always make some sound, but you're not hearing a frequency. There's no frequency that you can hear when they're dry, but when they're wet, then the frequency is changing. So it lowers the frequency. It um it depends. It, it must depends. It lowers. Is it lower? It has to. Uh, because you think about it, when you turn your cold water on in the shower, you can, and then the warm water finally kicks in in the shower head, you can hear the resonance of the water changing as it comes from oh, the shower yeah. head. Interesting. Right? So That's it's interesting. That same I, do, I know exactly what you're talking about. All right, Nate. Thanks. All right, for, cool. Pre- appreciate the call. We all seem to have a lot of things on our mind today. Mm-hmm. This is very good. Let's go to Mark in Pittsfield. Hello, Mark. You're on. Oh, good. Yes. Resonance is certainly uh, the issue. And the other side, I worked with uh, uh, Jay Pasikoff and uh, a fellow named John Anderson at General Electric Transformers. And they absolutely agree that vibration resonance is is the key to that. Um, We actually developed a system that could uh, detect solar flares based on the same exact things that you're talking about with resonance. And the vibrations, you can look at a clothesline and see the same effect happening when a train goes by or, you know, cars. Uh, so certainly vibrations. And uh, German engineering knows this. And in a lot of the equipment that they make, uh, they actually look for when the train goes by, the, the subway car, uh, in order that they can do some of their testings without any vibration. Um, and then the last part of that is uh, a car going onto the side of the road where you have the, um, the noise. Uh, uh, when you hear the noise uh, after the white line, you could actually use resonance in different sound levels and create a song out of that if you mm-hmm. wanted to. Really? Have yep. you done that? 
<laughs> I tried to. Did you? Good for you. Yeah, man. they did that in uh, San Francisco. I believe it plays uh, Unicline and Oct music if you're going just at the right speed. Really? Yeah. Yeah. This there's, is something there's, Phil there's, Lesh would have tried with the Grateful Dead years there's ago. There's a highway in Montana that has that as well. Highway in Montana yeah, has bridges that? in the road, and as you drive across, it plays a tune. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And then, cool. of course, the bridge, uh, the walking bridge that used to be, I think, a railroad bridge in Poughkeepsie, that's called the Singing Bridge because you, you have certain tubes that when the wind blows up and down the Hudson, it, it it doesn't really create a tune. It's more of a chord. Oh, that's um, neat. you can hear that, and that's part of the whole experience, and that's within our listening area. Well, Mark, thanks very much for the call. Do you think things like Stonehenge could have an acoustic uh, purpose as well, going Boy, way back I mean, when? They're rocks, pretty heavy. Rocks are pretty heavy, and they vibrate very slowly, so I wouldn't think so. All right, let's go now. But there was wood involved with those, too, right? There was, but I'm not exactly sure where the wood was. All right, let's go to Donna in Delmar. Hello, Donna in Delmar. Hi. Excuse me. Hi, everybody. I have a couple of questions that are a little uh, different. My okay. first one is, is, what do you know about the harnessing of fire ice or methane hydrates uh, to make energy as substitutes for the um, ones that are not good, whose name I can't remember, um, fossil fuels, yeah. And yeah. I want to know if the United States is doing anything in that area, because I know that some of the countries like Japan and uh, China and India are. And then my second question, if you can just tell me why when I went for a walk today on this beautiful warm day, regardless of how it got here, why does it smell like manure? Is it decaying leaves or is it something else? You weren't walking and by my, my house, were you? Walking, no. We've got, some, we've got some test trips for you to take. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first part of that, okay. the first part of that is easy, and you're right. The Japanese are looking at it. Uh, the problem is, is that the vast majority of the ice cloth rates are down about 400 meters in the water, and if anything, mm-hmm. we don't really want to get them out of there, because if they start coming to the surface, methane is between 20 and 100 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So. The best thing to do is to leave them where they are for as long as we can. Yeah, the, the, the methane, the methane, and the methane clathrates basically is natural gas. So um, you, you would not be saving on fossil fuel. It is just okay. an older fossil yeah, fuel. It's just a different fossil fuel. All right. And Anna, gotcha. where are you living? Donna. Donna. Sorry, Donna. Donna I can't read the screen. Delmar? That's okay. Bethlehem. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, so there are. Um, when we have weather like this, where the ground is still kind of frozen, farmers often mm-hmm. take their biosolids, the waste from livestock, and spread it on top of the snow because they're not going to sink in the ground, right? Early spring, it's too wet because even this weekend, it's going to rain and get to be 50. Yeah. The ground's going to get really soft. Mm-hmm. So this is their last opportunity to spread some manure probably until mid-spring. So often farmers will take gorgeous days like today where it's not going to rain, be, now it's mm-hmm. safe to put these down. Um, and I think th- th- there's an old wives' tale about the mixture of snow plus manure is like the best fertilizer that there is. I mean, it's <laughs> realistically not true, but that, that is one of the old tales that they used to tell. Fair enough. Donna. Wonderful. Thank you very much, everybody. Bye. Appreciate the call. 800-348-2551 is our number. It's the Science Forum with Kevin Knuth, Jim Pickett, Barbara Brabitz, and Ed Stander. And uh, well, let's grab one more, maybe two, before the next break. And then we'll delve into the email bag. Rhonda's in Sheffield. Rhonda, hello. Hi. Um, yeah, my name is Rhonda, and thanks so much for being there to take my call. Okay. Um, I saw something on social media. It was a video, and the title it, it included the word pendulum. And I can't pendulum wave may have been it. It was a series of balls that looked to be the size of uh, um, um, like cue, cue balls on a pool table. They were suspended from a string, each of them maybe a dozen, ten, Ten uh, of these balls, and the person would take a board, and they would be resting against the board, and be at a slight angle, and then they would let go, and they just go back and forth at first, and then they do this amazing series of motions, and I thought, is this real? Is uh, I, I'm hoping that that uh, it's familiar. This particular uh, thing to yeah. some of the people on your 
I bet they, I bet it is. Are, are the balls are the balls touching when they're just hanging? No, they were not touching. Do they bump into each other when they swing? They did not. They did not. And, and, and do, the, do, the, uh, do the strings have the same length, or do you not know? They do. They had all. They they appeared to me to have all the same length, and they went as you'd expect they would at first. You know, just straight ahead. And then they began doing this undulation and this turn, and then they separated, and and it was just so uh, remarkable looking. I thought maybe there's some truth in that, or you know, like so many things you see online, maybe fakery. Right. So, so, so were but. they were they pushed uh, were they pushed away from um, the lower point, the equilibrium point, but at an angle? Did you say? Is that yes. how you? Yeah. yeah. So that's yes, so that's was. probably what's going on. For the, for the most part, for a pendulum that's oscillating at a very low amplitude, so it isn't swinging very much, though the, the period of oscillation, the amount of time it takes for it to go back and forth, um, depends on the length of the string. But if you push yeah, it, it, but if you push them, if you push one a bit further than another, then that's not exactly true. So those, those pendula are going to have slightly different periods. Very slight. Ah. Yeah. So for the most part, they're going to swing together, but that small difference is going to, over time, become noticeable. Give it that wavy. So they'll, yep. so they'll slowly start yeah. to go out of yeah, phase with each other. A pendulum wave. Yeah. So so they'll so they'll eventually they'll start out together and then they'll slowly go out of phase with each other, and they'll make interesting patterns. And eventually, because an oscillation repeats itself, they'll eventually come back into phase again, and then Ah, they'll go out of phase and come back into phase. Barbara just pulled it up on YouTube while we're standing here, uh, while we're sitting here. It's quite a it's quite a lovely effect actually. Hey Rhonda, we got to take a break, but thank you very much for the call. And it's real. It's the Science Forum. Eight hundred three four eight two five five one is our number. Email is voxpop at wamc.org and we'll go through the email bag in a moment. Vox Pop on WAMC. Ray Graff with you. It's the Science Forum. 800-348-2551 is our number. Barbara Brabitz at Standard. Jim Pickett and Kevin Knuth join us today. And the email address is voxpop at wamc.org. And all right, panel, let's go through a few emails here. This one's from Frank. Alice and Bob are moving relative away from each other near the speed of light. Bob is aging slower relative to Alice. Alice is aging slower relative to Bob. They turn around and come back together again, moving near the speed of light. Then they slow down, stop, shake hands, and say hi. They are the same age since they say hi in the same reference frame. Where is the twin paradox? It doesn't seem to matter where Alice and Bob are when they're moving, whether a spaceship or Earth. Yeah, the twin paradox, that that whole problem is rather delicate, and it depends mostly on the acceleration. The fact that there's, that in this case, they're both accelerating the same way, and then the, um, then they're going to age the same overall. Um, However, when you usually hear the twin paradox discussed, you have somebody in a rocket ship leaving Earth, and those people on Earth are not accelerating, but the people on the rocket ship are. Right. And that changes the problem, yeah. and 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 the person in the rocket ship will time will go slower for them relative to the people on Earth, and when they come back, they'll be younger. Yeah, and my my understanding is, yeah, it's it's that turnaround. It's the turnaround that, point that, that matters. That matters. Where, where you have to slow down and turn around and come back, and that's that acceleration makes yeah. the difference. I'll take your word because for it. Because although velocity is relative, acceleration is not. Okay. So um, the, the, the accelerations involved in turning around. Right. Um, Could you tell the radio guy is glazing over here? I, I, <laughs> I'll take your word I'm for it. I'm still watching the pendulum. This is from Fred near Saratoga. Found an odd egg or uh, oval-shaped rock in the yard about 6 inches long by 4.5 inches wide. Heavy, about four to five and a half pounds, very coarse exterior, like an accretion of grainy stone particles with tiny sparkly crystals. Who can I talk to to ID this? I do live near Skidmore. They had a geology display, uh, and I think a geology department. I seriously doubt it's concrete. Uh, The subject heading says, ID a geode, question mark. I'd like to cut it open with a diamond wet saw. What do you think? That's from Fred. It's a pet rock. 
It's, it's a pet no, rock. I'm joking. I'm it's sorry. probably <laughs> it's probably a quartz, big uh, milky quartz crystal, and it wouldn't be a geode. So opening it up would probably be very, very useless, if you will. Okay. And the reason it's round like that or shaped like that is simply because it was originally near the ocean, which they very often are, and just rolling back and forth in the waves near the shore turns you into something like that. That is so cool. All right, this is from James. Uh, I can remember as far back as junior high school, there was always a prejudice toward fields like physics or engineering and against biology. Whether from teachers or just from society, students were given the impression that if you were really smart, you studied physics, while biology was for girls and everyone else. Right. Even hey. TV shows like, no, this is he's remembering I back. I understand. Uh, even TV shows like The Big Bang Theory seem to reinforce this. Why do you think we have such a bias in society, and what can we do about it? And that's from James. It's because women are so much better at math that the men are actually, they feel bad when a woman goes into that subject. They feel inferior. (laughs) Be very afraid. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the space race. There was a a big emphasis uh, uh, early on after Sputnik to try to get people into the fields of math and engineering so we could be competitive or be the winners in a competition against our enemies for space. And, And engineering and math and physics were all involved in that. And I think part of the prejudice, too, is that the thought was then, somewhat correctly, that women would, if trained in the field, would have to take time out to have their children, and that would slow down the race to space. Uh-huh. So even in the women who we celebrate now for their historic contributions, especially to NASA, often did not have families, um, and that's how they were able to have the durability. Now, I'm not saying that families slow you down. They you know, we, we manage it better now, for sure. And in my science department that Ed and I are in, we're 50-50 male-female. Not me. I'm all male. You're all male? Yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, we did test you with the paper strips. Okay. Uh, but but um, the majority of the women are in biology, and I'm the only woman who's a... No, there's... Well, in, our, in my department, I'm the only woman who's a chemist. Ah. I, so, would, I would point out. I would point out that back in the 1900s, which is what I was referring to, uh, the men would take the message, would take the things. For example, if they were doing astronomy, but it was the women who did all the work, mm-hmm. like the and quasar the, discovery the and things computers. like that. They right? were they were they called were the computers. That's right. They were called computers, and they they did all the mathematics because they were considered much much better at it than the men. Interesting. All right. This is from uh, Andrew. All right, writing from Northampton. Okay, is there an explanation as to why my shower curtain billows inward towards me while I'm taking a shower? It seems to happen in one bathroom more than another. Does it have something to do with the water temperature, orientation of the ceiling fan, where the curtain rod is in relation to the edge of the tub? The curtain I have has these small magnets at the bottom, but they don't seem to help very much. And that's from Andrew. Yeah, well, I think the big... he got it right with water yeah. temperature in the first guess. Yeah. And the other part of it, as long as the water temperature is the hot, hot air is rising and that's pushing it in. But the other part of it is the how close the bottom of the shower curtain is to the bottom of the uh, shower. Yeah. Because if there's enough room there for the air to get in, then it won't billow as much. Right. So if he moves the rod upwards an inch or two, then the billowing won't happen. And the reason why the magnets don't work is that most tubs that you put in houses these days are made of plastic. There's no metal like under an enamelized tub there's a metal cast iron base to make it super super heavy uh, and to hold the warmth for a bath. Like plastic tubs don't hold the warmth of a bath the way the old cast iron ones do. So that's why those magnets are there but that's kind of a legacy thing. Most of modern modern houses don't have that. So you're basically you're basically your hot water is heating the air and the hot air is rising, so your air is moving out of the shower, up, up, up through the ceiling and through the hole above your shower curtain. Mm-hmm. And so you've got less air in there, so the air pressure on the outside, outside your shower cushion, is pushing in. Ah. And so air is trying to get in to fill that gap. Gotcha. And that way, if you, that's why if you leave a little hole, a little space at the bottom for air to get in, it won't billow as much. All right, this is from Stephen in Pinebush. When you build a metal fence below high-voltage power lines, you can get an inductive current in the fence. Can you capture that energy in batteries? That's from Stephen in Pinebush. Well, in principle, probably yes, but it's going to be a very small amount. Okay. And not yeah. a terrific idea either. No. 
And it, may... wouldn't, it wouldn't be DC current either, would it? It's AC. It'll, yeah. it'll AC. be AC current. Yeah, you could build coils and, and actually capture some of that energy. But, All right. but uh, then you're basically stealing it from the power companies. So oh, we can't have that. Question there. Let me ask you a question. If you metal detect under a uh, power line, it doesn't have to be a high voltage, just a regular house power line, will it occasionally show hits, you know, X number of inches below the ground? Will that magnetic field be big enough to to disturb the metal detector? Good question. Don't know. Okay. We have some experimental evidence that shows that it might over Mm. in our house. Interesting. Uh, This is from Peter in Cranford, New Jersey. Mm. When I bicycle, I encounter a small hill of approximately 15 feet with an incline of 20 degrees. I can either pedal rapidly to the base of the hill, coast up, and then resume pedaling once on flat ground, or continue pedaling up the hill. In both cases, I pedal until I reach the same speed that I had maintained at the bottom of the incline. Can you please tell me which approach uses less energy, or do both uh, methods use the same energy? The math teacher at the school where I teach told me to ask the physics teacher. The physics teacher informed me that it was a very complex question (laughs) and left it at that. I teach history, but that did not offer any solutions, and that's from Peter in Cranford, New Jersey. Well, I I can tell you, just to start off the bat, that uh, there's a thing called hypermiling. And that's what you do with cars. And what we've learned with cars is that if you're going down the hill, you speed up the car as much as possible to coast up to the top of the hill, and that saves the greatest amount of energy. That's how to get your gas mileage higher, like in a that's hybrid, right. for example. Yeah. Yeah. But in this, from flat from up flat, the hill yeah. to flat again, because of air resistance increasing, you, you'd have to increase your speed on the, on the flat before the hill. Ah. To, to coast on up the hill. And it's going to require more energy to overcome the air resistance to go fast. On the other hand, you progressively slow down. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess that um, going faster to coast up the hill is probably more, requires more energy. Yeah, if you if you take friction out of the problem, then... Then, then you don't go the, up the hill. Then you don't. Then you don't gain or lose any energy. Energy is going to be conserved through the whole process. So, so the only thing that can happen is you're going to lose energy, and that's going to happen through friction. And going faster will create more air resistance, and you're going to lose more energy that way. So keeping a lower speed is better. So you're suggesting he should grease himself up before he goes biking? Or sure. get one of those really funky helmets that when you hunch down on your handlebars, uh, yeah. it runs down your back. Right so you, you are. Smooth. Throw his arms behind him until <laughs> so you go faster. <laughs> and then, and then you, you lose control or of the bike. Or use a bobsled. Uh, or use a car. Okay. Uh, this is scientific. Uh, this is from Rachel. Uh, last Saturday afternoon, I saw an orb about the size of a basketball flying just above tree tops going roughly due south. It was moving about 25 miles per hour, was translucent, almost transparent, and had no protrusions such as on a drone. Ideas as to what this was, I will tell you, Rachel is a regular correspondent to the show from, I believe, Massachusetts, a very level-headed individual. So we can take that one at face value. Well, one thing that people very often do is they send up little hot air balloons they make a little hot air balloon effectively by putting a f- small thing of sterno at the bottom, and then the balloon itself is made out of paper, and it lights up the paper so that as it goes by, it appears to be a ball. That that would be my guess is what it was. This was in the afternoon? Yep. Okay. You can also buy drones that look like UFOs now. It's like just a kitschy thing that you can do. Really? You can go, and they're not Let's expensive. Just the they're just pro- topic. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're like confusing. 50 bucks, and they'll, they have like a little fan, like a ceiling fan inside the drone itself. So it's within the orb, so you don't necessarily see that it's got a propeller on the inside. That's so interesting. I mean, you know, they can do these things now with drones. In, in the late 50s and in the early 60s, the uh, Canadian Avro Company and uh, the U.S. government tried to build these flying yep. saucers. and they were underpowered, and they only went a few feet off the ground, and they, they didn't really stabilize very well. Given our technology today, could could there be enough power plant to actually fly those things? I think weather is a problem with them. That's really the issue. When we deal with, with wind, right, if you catch an edge on an orb that's kind of flat but, but circular, you're going to flop. 
and then you're going to lose all of your air resist, your, you know, your differential and the air resistance. But the stealth forward. bombers, yes, they need computers to, yes, to yes. equalize. I mean, it's uh, pretty much the same phenomenon as what you're talking about with the stealth, right? So if you had the computing power and you had the power plant, you could do almost anything. Mm. Yeah, I think anything, so. Yeah. yeah, amazing. Uh, number to call here is 800-348-2551. Let's go up to Burlington. Patrick, you're on. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks. I love your show. I have a quick question. I'm along uh, one of the bays on Lake Champlain, which is covered with ice. And obviously on a day like today, the, the sun heats up air that's trapped under the ice. I wonder if I could talk a little bit about the sounds that are produced as ice is settling. It seems like almost an echoing, booming sound that can come across the lake and be really disconcerting if you're on the ice. Yep. Thanks. That's my question. Okay. Yep. It's actually not the air under the ice that's doing it. It's the ice itself expanding and contracting and you get cracks in it, and once that crack forms, it travels through the ice at the speed of sound, and it can actually cause it to do an amazing amount of booming. I, I've heard it on the lakes, and it's, it's phenomenal. And it usually requires a sunny day for it to happen. Mm. Yeah. I'm hearing it today. Cool. Yeah, it's a fantastic effect, yeah. Yeah, and I've heard ones that sound like, like a, almost like a lightning bolt that you'd hear on television, kind of like a kapow, and yeah. then kind of a mm. crackle noise, and then kind of a low boom. I've heard them three different ways. Yeah. And if you want to see something really cool, go on YouTube. There's a there's a YouTube video of a fellow who is skating on thin ice, mm. and he's going fast enough that he doesn't fall through, but you can hear the ice going as he goes through because of the weight that he's placing on it. It's just an amazing thing. All right, Patrick, thanks a lot. Let's go to Rachel in Albany. Rachel, you're on. Hi. Um, my uh, my question is pretty simple. I found out I was a taster um, back in seventh grade when I took biology. And I, I like broccoli. I like Brussels sprouts. I don't know if I did at the yeah. time. Okay. But one thing I was wondering if there's any correlation to artificial sugars. Um, I feel like I have, I taste something bitter, have an aftertaste after artificial sugars, and no one else seems to have that. Hmm. I'm there with you. And as I said earlier, I can only taste the PTC paper a little bit. Uh, but Stevia or Equal or any or Nutrisweet, uh, even Nutrisweet, I'll have kind of an aftertaste that's not appealing. Yeah. yeah and, I'm that and, way with Stevia. I don't like Stevia at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not a not yeah. a taster and, and I can't taste the bitterness in all right. artificial sweetness. Thanks, Jim. You yeah. saved us from getting sued. Well, I oh, appreciate you, that very much. You, you poor thing. You're missing something, boy. Uh, oh, this is a good one from Andy, and I believe Andy's up the Plattsburgh way. Um, as a lineman for over 23 years, many folks don't realize that telephone cables, cable TV coax used between poles, are not round. They often have a carrier wire attached to or included under the vinyl covering. This creates a crude wing shape, and even a gentle wind will create lift. And as the angle of attack changes, the lift angle changes relative to the wind, creating a swinging cable if it is not properly tensioned between poles. Excellent. There's our answer. Interesting. Yeah, and he adds, on long transmission lines, we actually bolt offset weights to dampen the sympathetic vibrations near the pole. They look like dumbbells offset mm -hmm. from the wire. Yeah, and sometimes they'll have more than one wire. They'll actually have connectors between the two of them so that they, one won't vibrate while the other one is. Interesting. All right, this email from Ed, and we, well, we might be able to get a couple more in here. Ed and Skodak, when you're considering the accuracy of movements, sightings, distances, and astronomy, how does your science deal with Godel incompleteness theorems and Heidelberg uncertainty principles? In oh, a minute, go ahead. <laughs> well, um, let's see. I don't. I think neither of those really apply in that type of problem. Um, Gerdau's incompleteness theorem is a mathematical theorem that that says that not all true things are provably true. Um, so there are some mathematical facts that may be true, but you won't be able to prove they're true. Um, so that doesn't really affect our science in day to day to life. Um, and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is the, the fact that you can't um, simultaneously measure um, momentum of an object and, the, and its position precisely. Uh. Um, you'll always have some uncertainty. You can measure one with some uncertainty, and you're going to measure the other with a, with a corresponding uncertainty. Yeah. My, my students <laughs> use both of those when they're taking a test. <laughs> right, right. And the point of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is that it applies to teeny tiny things. Yeah, yeah not uh, very small objects. things. Yes, but, so quantum, me quantum mechanics. So it doesn't yeah. matter when you're doing astronomy. So why is quantum mechanics ruled by 
not necessarily different set of rules, but it why is. do things behave differently at a very small level and not at our macro oh, level? That's a great question. Grand unifying theory. Go, oh, Kevin. Well, You've got 30 seconds. Uh, yes, 30 seconds. 30 seconds. All right. Well, quantum mechanics says how little things really behave, and um, but you put a bunch of little things together and you make a big thing, but you're putting many, 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 many little things together, you know, 10 to the 20-some objects together. And so these little, these tiny effects all kind of get washed out in averages. And what you actually are measuring being something as big as we are, you're measuring average average behavior of an ah, object. Average behavior. And the wavelength gets shorter as the mass gets bigger. Hmm. So you in principle can be treated as a quantum mechanical object, but the wavelength, the uncertainty is infinitesimally small. Yeah, you're vibrating, but you know you don't look blurry to us because you're. <laughs> oh, I'm vibrating. It's, it's, all right, it's, yeah. it's immeasurably small. You won't be able to measure it. Oh, yeah. look at the time. We got into the quantum <laughs> mechanics, and the show's over. Well, <laughs> rats. That's how it usually works. <laughs> hey, Kevin, Kevin Canoe with Barbara Bravitz, Ed Stander, and Jim Pickett. Thank you guys for being here today. We'll see you next time. Support comes from Plaza Travel Center, presenting personally escorted trips to Croatia, Japan, and Spain. Details at plazatravel.net or 518-785-3338. Once again, thanks to Ed, Barbara, Kevin, and Jim for being here. Thank you for listening. Tremendously astute questions. We appreciate them all. And uh, thanks to Zach Malloy, our engineer. He failed the super taster test, but he's a wonderful human being. Susie Chekai, our call screener, brought the strips. Thank you for that, Susie. Uh, tomorrow on Food Friday, we're going to bake with Chef Gail Sokol. We'll see you too.